This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek event podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Clara Cook, and joining me today, as always, is my co-host, Duncan Barrett. Hello, Duncan. Hello, Clara. How are you? I'm feeling really miserable. <laughs> That's a surprise. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it could be worse, I think. You know, whatever, however bad a week you've had, there's, you know, it, it, could always, it could always be worse. And sometimes it's worth turning our attention to those who, you know, really have a pretty... Uh, miserable lot in life i suppose as a way of uh, making ourselves feel better about ourselves yeah i mean i can hear you know the people sing singing the songs of angry men you know and i've lost my teeth and my hair and i'm about to die of consumption and i have some illegitimate child you know hanging around in some orphanage somewhere it's just been a bad week yeah yeah that sounds not ideal anyway you know but at least you're not being pursued you know from place to place and every time you you change your name everywhere you go you know this this awful person is is on your tail devoted (laughs) to bringing you to justice so it could be worse no that's true that's true uh so in usual primitive culture style duncan and i have chosen the most depressing subject of all time (laughs) it's literally there it's there in the title you know (laughs) there's no getting around it (laughs) So we're going to be talking about Les Miserables and the influence it's had on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and the themes around Les Miserables, uh, which is obviously the book written by Victor Hugo, and the sort of themes of justice, themes of revenge, uh, sort of a crazy pursuit of an individual, of a criminal law, justice, that kind of thing. And it's all to do with Deep Space Nine. It's all to do with Cisco. Cisco and his pursuit of Eddington, who is the Marquis leader. He's a Marquis leader, isn't he? Yeah, I think he certainly is the leader of the Marquis. Um, maybe not when we first see him defecting. Well, not really defecting because he, he's working for them already. When we first see him leaving to join the Marquis. But certainly by the time that story's picked up again in For the Uniform, I think we're meant to understand that he is their leader by that point. So he's obviously kind of worked his way up the ranks of that organisation, yeah. And he's also a Starfleet officer who has committed mutiny. Is it not? It's not mutiny, but he's betrayed the uniform. Treason. Treason. That's what Cisco That's says. The there's a word for it. Treason. Yeah. Treason. Worse than mutiny. 
But the, it's an interesting question. Is, is he a Federation citizen? Because when they talk about the Maquis in Deep Space Nine, and I think even in one of these episodes, they say this, that basically there seems to be this view that as soon as you uh, switch sides you revoke, you, you know, your citizenship is revoked. Actually, exactly like, I suppose, what's going on in the news at the moment with this um, 15-year-old girl who went off to join ISIS and this question of, you know, what happens, you know, she now says she wants to come back to Britain and the Foreign Secretary has basically said, you're not British anymore. You know, if you make a decision like that, you you don't have a home to come back to, essentially. Uh, and I find it slightly surprising, the Federation, which is this very kind of, um, you know, not only sort of peace-loving, but quite forgiving uh, organization in a sense generally generally speaking you know anyone can be brought into the fold old enemies can become friends and so on that they take this pretty hard line with the marquee despite the fact that many starfleet officers we know have sympathy with the marquis you know um o'brien for example is kind of saying he, he understands where they're coming from and yet there does seem to be this view if you side with the marquee you, you've almost given up all your rights you're kind of you know you're an enemy of the state you're a kind of outlaw you have no recourse to kind of you know, the, the normal expectations of Federation citizens. And th- that surprised me a little bit that they would be quite so kind of hardline on that. Yeah, I, I think you're supposed to think that there's a great deal of s- at stake when it comes to the, to the Maquis. The Maquis risk open war. Well, they risk the Federation having op- uh, having an open war with the, with the Cardassians and they're destabilising the whole region. But you're right, there are sort of weird, iffy issues to do with this whole story and a few of them are also to do with Eddington's association with Les Miserables itself like Eddington sees himself as Jean Valjean who is the hero of Les Miserables who is a complex character but ultimately a good man and he sees Cisco as Javert the police inspector who's pursuing Jean Valjean basically throughout his entire life and isn't necessarily a bad person but he's uh very um what would you say like he's like well he he is the villain of the novel he's obsessive. i think i mean he's yeah he's obsessive he's he's just very sort of blinkered he he has this what ultimately turns out to be this quite tragic sort of limited understanding of human nature morality spirituality and so on you know he thinks he's doing the right thing he and he i think he wasn't he born in a in a debtor's prison or something like he he comes from he has that sort of background you know he's he's seen as he sees it kind of criminality and and sort of the you know seedy underbelly of society in a sense that's where he's come from and he's sort of turned himself into this um you know, the sort of ultimate policeman. He's obsessed with rule, obsessed with law and order, uh, obsessed with the letter of the law. You know, there's no bending as far as Javert is concerned. If someone is a criminal, they're a criminal. And, and also he has this sort of idea that there are two kinds of people, basically the good people and the bad people, and the criminals are the bad people and they deserve to be locked up and, and punished and kind of brutalised to some extent. They sort of deserve it. And then there are the, the people who stick to the rules uh who obey the laws and those people are kind of uh the good people and really what happens massive spoiler here for anyone who hasn't read Les Mis although if you've seen the DS9 episode uh Cisco spoils it for Dax uh in that episode as well Javert basically comes to this point where he commits suicide because his whole world view which we've seen him sort of pursue for what is it? I mean, sort of decades by, by this point, by the end of the novel, is shaken by the fact that he's in this situation. He's been pursuing this man, Jean Valjean. He's been absolutely persecuting him for years and years and years, trying to 
catch him, trying to get him back in chains, trying to kind of stop him from moving on with his life, stop him from this. Because Jean Valjean is on this sort of path of redemption where he, you know, he has committed an extremely minor crime a long, long time ago. He stole a loaf of bread because his sister's family were starving. He's done his time, but he's he's never really been able to escape it. And he's always been sort of trying to rebuild himself. And he does rebuild himself as this successful uh, businessman and becomes the mayor of a town. And then Javert kind of tracks him down and he has to flee and he has to reinvent himself with a new persona. But so as far as Javert is concerned, this man is just a criminal. He can't really acknowledge he can't see any of the progress that he's made the kind of moral progress that he's made to becoming you know not just a good man but a kind of almost a sort of saintly figure i mean i think there's a line in the novel uh towards the end of the novel where um marius who's the sort of young lover basically finally understands everything about jean valjean and it and the line is the convict was transfigured into Christ. So he sort of suddenly sees him as this kind of Christ figure, as this kind of saintly figure. And there is something quite religious about the whole language of the novel and the whole kind of way that Jean Valjean is presented. But Javert just can't cope with it. He, As far as he's concerned, you know, good people don't break the law. And when he's in this situation where this man he's been absolutely persecuting has the opportunity to kill him and get away with it, and yet Jean Valjean lets him go, just as Eddington in the DS9 episode lets Cisco go. You know, he, he says he's not going to destroy the Defiant when he can. It creates this real kind of crisis for him because everything he thought he knew about the world is proved to be a lie. And so he's, he's, he's in this kind of crisis of confidence, this crisis of faith. What's even worse is he comes to the situation where he actually lets Jean Valjean go and he can't reconcile this with himself that he did it ultimately. He had this kind of very, very slowly awakened conscience. He let this guy go because he could see that he was a good man and he didn't really deserve to be arrested and punished. And yet as the policeman, he can't justify that, that, that basically he's broken the rules himself in order to do the right thing. And it's this kind of crisis. It's almost like, you know, it's, it's almost like a, you know, a robot in Star Trek or something, you know, something that doesn't compute. It's this kind of moral paradox that finishes him and he ends up committing suicide as a result. But the interesting thing about this is that Cisco isn't actually very much like this. So he's like this to a certain extent in his obsessive quest to hunt down Eddington and be the one to bring Eddington to justice. Like he's not willing to let any other Starfleet officer do this because as we see in the episode um, for the uniform, he's kind of tortured by the fact that he was taken in by Eddington and Eddington worked with him and he trusted him and didn't for once think that Eddington was committing treason but cisco is not someone that follows rules and he's also not somebody who can't see the complexity in human beings like he's not someone that doesn't understand the different sides and facets of the the human personality or the human psyche he actually can see the good and the bad in people and i would say he's much more of a gray sort of leader captain and commander than say for instance try to think of an example like picard who's much more likely to follow rules you know or even janeway who's quite obsessed with you know with following the rules to some extent yeah although she is also one of those people that could be obsessive and like hunting people down i suppose that's true you could see that you could get well and picard certainly you know we have that whole storyline with the borg and and picard as captain ahab you know there's an element of similarity between the two things and i think it's true that's what eddington sees himself as this persecuted man who's done nothing wrong you know he likens himself to jean valjean who all he did was he stole this loaf of bread i mean in fact Eddington's situation is slightly different. You, you know, you, you could say in terms of the story of Les Miserables, 
Eddington actually has much more in common with Enjolras, who's the kind of leader of the band of rebels or the leader of the students who are, who, who's kind of fermenting this rebellion, which is what ultimately gets everyone killed. Just as, you know, as, as Cisco is saying, Eddington is the one who's got all of the Marquis killed because he's kind of sold them on this idea of a revolution that they're never going to be able to win because, you know, there's the army against them with all of their military might. And this is just a, a bunch of, you know, of ordinary, civilians basically trying to put up a fight against them and similarly with the maquis there's this idea you know they're no match for the dominion i mean the dominion we're told wiped them out in three days that it's it's really it is a kind of hopeless cause but there's definitely this kind of question i i think you're right is cisco really this kind of javert character because not only is he a guy with a sort of sense of shades of gray and morality is a, a bit sort of blurry in many you know we see episodes where his his kind of sense of right and wrong seems surprisingly flexible for a Starfleet captain. But even in this, in that very episode, he has a conversation with Dax about, you know, she says, I, I want you to remember this the next time I want to go off on some crazy mission. And, and the fact is he does allow <laughs> his crew to go off and kind of pursue things, you know, that are very much not following the rules in a sense and to kind of do what they think is right on a case by case basis. And actually, even in the episode for the cause, which is the one where Eddington, you know, betrays Cisco and betrays them all and, and goes off to join the Marquis or to, officially join the Maquis because he's working for them already. We have this situation where Cisco is very much not Javert because he finds out that his girlfriend, Cassidy, is working for the Maquis. And he tries to talk her out of going on the mission where he knows she's going to get caught. You know, there's this quite moving scene, really, where he's sort of saying, let's just chuck it all in. Let's go to Riser. Let's go on holiday. Let's kind of forget all of this. You know, this is absolutely not the kind of rule-obsessed policeman. This is someone who's willing to bend the rules to quite an extreme extent. So, you know, in that episode, you have Odo, for example, really not wild about the extent to which Cisco is kind of, you know, is really bending the rules to try and keep his girlfriend out of trouble, in a sense. He's absolutely, you know, he's someone who's kind of, who's compromised by his situation, who's compromised by the fact that it's Cassidy who's involved. And he's not taking, in some ways, the kind of really strict, hard, straightforward line that we might expect from a Starfleet officer in that situation. He's not able to totally separate his own interests and his own feelings from his duty and doing the right thing. You know, there's a kind of, that that's quite murky and quite messy and quite difficult. If you took this episode out of context... So, like, out of context of the rest of the series. For the uniform, I'm about do you for, mean? I'm talking about for the uniform, mm-hmm. yeah. You might sympathise with Eddington and not with Cisco, And you might think Cisco was the villain. Because they do really over-egg Cisco's like, fury in this episode and his impulsiveness and his anger. And it's also nice to see that, like, he's, you know, being questioned by his, his subordinates, especially on the bridge when he decides to release that gas into the atmosphere of the planet where they have like the Maki colony and stuff. But it's, it's hard to look at the episode out of context. And I guess when you're watching or reading Les Miserables, I just want to emphasize I didn't read it. I watched the BBC television seri- series. I want to emphasize that Duncan did actually <laughs> read it. This is, yeah, I mean, I think this is, I went beyond the call of duty for primitive culture. This, this book, I, I, and to be fair, I didn't read it as a book. I read it as an audio book. I, I, you know, listened to it. But the audio book was, I think, 60 plus hours long, something like that. Oh my God. Um, and. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's a great story. I'd say it's a fantastic story. It's a very moving story. It's very dramatic. It's very well written. It's, you know, great in many ways. It is very, very, very long. And also a quarter of that novel 
is not even plot. Um, something like a quarter of these, these endless digressions where Victor Hugo goes off and writes like 10 chapters on the sewer system in Paris or, you know, this, this extremely long description of the Battle of Waterloo, which has a, a kind of, you know, has a, an impact on the plot. But the TV series, for example, the recent BBC TV series dispatched that in a kind of, 30 second prologue basically and you got all the same information <laughs> that you actually needed to know so i mean i would say no- normally when we have these conversations i say i'd recommend go and read the book or whatever in this instance i i, I would say maybe read the book or get an audio book but definitely do not feel bad about getting an abridged version because i think if i'd had the abridged <laughs> version i might have enjoyed it slightly more there was lots to enjoy in there but actually the bbc adaptation that's been on recently I think does a brilliant job of getting, cause I mean, people are always going to compare that to the, to the um, musical and to the film of the musical and so on. The musical is about two and a half hours long. The BBC drama is about six hours long. The novel, as I say, if you, if you listen to the whole thing is about 60 hours long. So about 10 times as long as that. I think the BBC adaptation managed to get in pretty much everything that you need from the novel. It, it, you know, it, it didn't feel to me like there was much missing from that. So you know, if you're if you're picking your your you know way of consuming Les Mis, I'd say that recent BBC drama is a pretty good way to go. So you pick the right <laughs> horse, Clara. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Les Misérables is a, a much longer story. It's set over many years, and for the uniform is obviously a short a shorter story. So if you take if you take that shorter story out of context, Cisco is snappy with his staff. He uh, it really overreacts to somebody else being assigned to bring Edithin in. And he does seem very Javert-like, like, you know, he seems like this obsessed man, or like Captain Ahab, an obsessed man who is is hunting down something that's eventually going to destroy him, like the hunter hunting a, a, a thing that will eventually lead to their destruction. But if you look at the episode in the context of the whole of Deep Space Nine, it's much more complicated. So, you know, knowing exactly like how devastating the Cardassian occupation of Bajor was, knowing how, you know, many Starfleet officers died in squabbles and skirmishes with the Cardassians. And also by this point, we're starting to see the Cardassians more as people because, you know, we've had sympathetic Cardassian characters, or at least some anyway. And so when Eddington launches a biogenic weapon on a planet that has a Cardassian colony on it, and then sort of puts the Cardassians who are fleeing that colony to, to get away from the poisoned atmosphere in danger, then you do actually feel that Eddington sees himself as his freedom fighter. He sees himself as Jean Valjean, but he's actually a criminal. Whereas Jean, Jean Valjean is a criminal, but it's very much because the laws of the land, you know, harshly punish somebody who was living in poverty. Mm. Well, also, Jean Valjean is not a freedom fighter. I mean, Jean Valjean is at the barricade, but he's only there because he's gone there to look for Marius. You know, he's not a revolutionary at all. Really, Jean Valjean just wants to keep his head down, play by the rules. You know, he makes a lot of money as a businessman playing by the rules. And there is this sort of weird double standard, I think. I mean, I, I said, you know, maybe Eddington is, is more like this character of Enjolras, who's one of, who's the guy sort of fermenting rebellion in a sense. And there's this interesting point, which is, is sort of noticed in the, book of Les Miserables, and I don't think it's really registered in in either the musical or, to my memory anyway, maybe you'll correct me if I'm wrong, the the recent BBC adaptation, which is the fact that there's this whole thing about Jean Valjean's kind of criminality. And and at the very end of the story, Jean Valjean has saved Marius's life. He's brought him back to his 
adopted daughter, Cosette. They're getting married. They're going to live happily ever after. And Jean Valjean basically confesses to Marius his story and, and tells his whole story of, you know, the fact that he's this convict and basically says he's going to have to go away to, you know, because he doesn't want the kind of shame if he's ever discovered to affect them and to affect his, his adopted daughter and so on. And Marius is quite unsympathetic to Jean Valjean. Once he, once he discovers that he's this convict, he's kind of, he's not Javert, but at the same time, his sympathy for him and his liking of him is affected by that. And Hugo actually points out in passing, you know, Marius has just tried to overthrow the government. You know, Marius has, has been a revolutionary killing, you know, potentially killing soldiers. Uh, and, you know, all of that is somehow considered acceptable. And yet this guy who was a criminal because he stole a loaf of bread is a sort of common criminal as opposed to a political criminal in that sense. He's still quite blinkered about that. He sort of says, you know, Marius had come a long way, but basically this was a, a kind of blind spot for him really to, to, that he still had that kind of prejudice against someone who, was a criminal who had committed a crime that therefore he sort of saw them as tarred by it in the same way as Javert does. So there is that kind of interesting question there of are the Marquis different from other criminals because it's a noble cause, because it's a kind of, it's a political statement. It's not just a kind of, they're not Harry Mudd. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're not just sort of criminals for the sake of, of, um, improving their own lot or, or kind of profiting from their criminal enterprises or whatever. They're, they are, they see themselves as, as in the right and they see the Federation as in the wrong. And I suppose there is that kind of question. What does that, how does that play into these kind of ideas of right and wrong and kind of, um, moral or immoral and so on? And of course, that's part of the theme of these episodes. You could say it's also very much part of the theme of Les Miserables. I mean, you were saying is, um, is Cisco really a typical Javert character? One thing I'd point out actually is even in that episode, uh, you know, famously, that's the episode where Cisco completely loses it. He has that line, you betrayed your uniform, which he's practically screams at him. You know, it's one of the most kind of, I mean, people think Avery Brooks, you know, gives the kind of over the top performances. This is kind of the high point of Avery Brooks's over the top <laughs> performances, I think. Actually, Javert is described as being very cool. He's, he's very kind of sort of kind of repellently, icily cool at all times. You know, he pursues like a kind of, um, like a fox or something, like some kind of hunting animal, but he's not a kind of passionate man in that sense, um, in the way that, that Jean Valjean is. And, and I think there's this interesting question. It kind of made me think, are there other characters in Star Trek or even in Deep Space Nine that are actually more like Javert? And the obvious one I'd say is Odo. I mean, Odo, you could say, is very much someone who's obsessed with law and order, who's obsessed with the rules to the extent that sometimes he does quite morally questionable things, uh, for the sake of kind of keeping the peace of, you, you know, of, he can be quite blink, quite morally blinkered, I'd say. Worf, even, you might say, you know, also on DS9, someone who's very much, you know, this is the right thing to do. This is what, you know, the rules say. This is what honour requires. Very kind of unbending, inflexible. You know, in some ways, those characters, I think, are more in common with Javert than, than Cisco, who, as you point out, is is a much more sort of adaptable, kind of morally flexible uh, character in some ways. And also willing to, Cisco's kind of willing to fudge it a bit more than than those characters would be. He's willing to kind of come up with a solution that is a bit of a, it, that, that lands in a bit of a grey area. As we see in this episode where he does do something which is unquestionably immoral in a sense in that he poisons this planet uh you know he forces all these people to leave their their planet he does an awful thing but at the same time he does it because he thinks it will it's kind of a gamble and it works and he gets eddington and he therefore he sees it as kind of 
it was worth the kind of moral trade. But it's it's very much the opposite of that kind of black and white thinking where, you know, doing a bad thing is always the wrong decision. So I think we've kind of established that we don't actually think Eddington's accurate in his comparison between Cisco and Javert. And like you were saying, Eddington probably fits the revolutionaries in Le Miserable more than Jean Valjean, who is like this man who's just trying to get on with his life and exercise the shame and like the badge of shame that he wears having been a con- convict. But why does Eddington make this comparison? Like why this book in particular? Is it because he's got this sort of hero complex? I mean, that's what Cisco implies that he's a hero and he sees himself as a hero to justify the things that he has, he's doing. And I think although the Maquis are sympathetic, like you were saying, you know, that they feel like they're fighting for the, for their rights. They're fighting for their colonies. They're fighting for their homes. And we do see later on in Voyager that there are some very admirable Maquis characters like Chakotay, for instance. But Eddington crosses a line by using biogenic weapons. And that's, I mean, that's almost worse than what Michael did in Discovery. And she, she got thrown in prison. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, although actually is it worse? Cause she did start a war, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like he, you know, he's, he's crossing a line there. He's, he's, he's trying to start a war arguably. I mean, or at least he wants a war essentially, doesn't he? He, he wants to kind of up the stakes with the marquee he's he's not afraid to do that he's he's definitely crosses the line he also crosses the line i'd say i mean even before that you know in in for the cause when he pulls the wool over everyone's eyes he also totally screws cassidy yates over who's this quite decent person who's been helping them out you know providing them with these medical supplies and so on and he uses her he knows she's going to get caught to sort of serve his own interests he's a pretty ruthless operator i'd say eddington he's he's i mean actually you know unlike anyone in les mis in a sense in that at least the the revolutionaries in les mis they're quite they're very honorable they're very honest they're very you know especially enjolras is 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 real they're real idealistic characters you know they are these students they're very committed they know they're almost certainly going to die they're willing to die for the cause they see their own lives as as you know worth sacrificing and I suppose there is that commonality there because Cisco points out, he, he and Dax have this long conversation about why is, why is Les Mis Eddington's favourite book? What does this say about him? And Dax says several times, well, it shows he's a romantic. It shows he has this sort of idea of himself. And basically what Cisco says is that he thinks that what Eddington really wants is an opportunity to sacrifice himself for the greater good. Because I suppose it kind of feeds his ego and it feeds this idea of him as this great noble leader in a sense who's willing to die or to be captured or whatever whatever it is for the for the greater good and that's how he kind of draws him out in that episode and then later on in blaze of glory of course we see the kind of logical end point of that where eddington does get to go out in you know the the blaze of glory he does get to sacrifice himself in a very in a scene which almost feels um i mean they've stopped talking about les miserables by that point but it's a scene which does feel like it could have been taken from Les Miserables in that you have this kind of visually, this sort of iconography of this long corridor full of dead bodies, which is exactly what you get whenever you put Les Miserables on screen because the barricade where everyone, you know, everyone apart from Marius, literally all of them get killed is, is in this sort of long, narrow Parisian street. And there are just dead bodies everywhere lined up all along it. And so, so you get that kind of similar iconography. You get this idea of um, Eddington alone against the Jem'Hadar. And again, this idea that the Jem'Hadar are these militarised fighters. He's just this one guy by the end. He's clearly going to die. You know, there's no way out of that. He knows that. 
And there is this idea of the romance, as Cisco says at the end of that episode, there's something attractive about a lost cause, the romance of sacrificing yourself in a, in a way that can never, you know, not, not only, I suppose that part of it is it's not only can, can he not survive, but ultimately the Maquis are doomed. And that's really what TS9 is saying in these episodes, just as this rebellion in, in France in 1832, uh, it was doomed. And in Les Miserables, they realized quite early on, I think it's after the first night, maybe at the barricade, they get the news that the, the, the rest of the city has not risen up as they expected. You know, they, they thought everyone was going to rise up. There was going to be this revolution. There was going to be this huge thing. They were playing their part. And at a certain point, they discover it didn't happen. And it's just them, basically. They're all that's left. And there's no way that they're going to come out of it alive. There's no way they're going to overthrow the regime. They're all just going to be massacred. And yet they kind of accept that. And the the best they can hope for is that their deaths kind of echo down the years and sort of inspire people in the future. And so there is that kind of idea of the the sort of, I suppose, the pointlessness, the hopelessness of the Marquis, which does get picked up in Voyager, I suppose, when you have those episodes, you know, when Voyager uh, get in touch with the Alpha Quadrant, and they find out what's happened to the Marquis. And this, of course, is what, you know, subsequently tips Bellana over into, uh, say, an extreme risk, the behaviour she's displaying there. You know, she's struggling to deal with the fact, and we see Chakotay struggling as well in the earlier episode, Hunters, I think, where they first find out about it, with the fact that all their friends are killed, that everything was for nothing, you know, that basically they were just obliterated in the end. And, we, you know, we've spent this time in DS9 seeing the Marquis' sort of fortunes go up and down a bit, and, um, you, you know, they do strike some kind of blows against the Cardassians in particular, but ultimately, as soon as the Dominion comes along that's it. They're just, you know, off the face of the map pretty much. And, and nearly all of them are, are wiped out. So bad news for Thomas Riker and Ro Laren, I think. Yeah. Although I know it's not can- canonical, but in the, in the novels, Ro Laren comes back and I think she serves as a security chief. For all is forgiven, Lyon. clearly. <laughs> and has a relationship with Quark, which. Oh my God. Coming. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway. So, well, there's something to look um, forward to, but yeah. Uh, so- something that I did not expect. Yeah. But, um, so what does the, what does the Miserable say about human rights then? Because the revolutionaries are fighting to change Paris, to change France, to change the situation where there's, you know, really rich people and corruption and really, really poor people that have no rights. And I guess the Maquis are fighting to keep their freedom, to maintain their, their settlements and their, and their planets. And so the Federation is kind of the villain in this, isn't it really? Like the Starfleet's kind of the villain. I mean, I sort of see the Starfleet has this wider concern about trying to keep peace in the region and that we are really aware of that in Deep Space Nine because of all the destruction that has been, reeked you know like on Bajor and everything and we see that repeatedly but there is a human rights problem here isn't there and it's, it sort of exists in Les Miserables especially when it comes to stuff stuff to do with the prison and Jean Valjean in the prison and still being a prisoner even though he served his time and then also the revolutionaries but this also exists in Deep Space Nine specifically these episodes as well are we supposed to be on Cisco's side like I mean He's not Javert, but is he actually a villain? Well, I think there's this big question throughout, and it starts in Next Gen as well, you know, with that treaty with the Cardassians, because we see it in Journey's End, even before the Maquis are ever kind of mentioned or, or, or named or anything, we see this idea of a kind of resistance to this political decision that's been taken, which clearly is, is destroying the lives of a lot of ordinary, of a lot of ordinary people on the ground. I think the question is, you know, 
is Cisco just following his orders? He's trying to kind of, he is trying to maintain some kind of stability. He's also kind of doing what he's told to do. Uh, you, you know, he is a, a military officer in a sense. Um, to me, the issue is maybe more what's the Federation doing? Like, what's the Federation Council doing about this? What's the kind of political decision that's being taken rather than other military on the ground responsible for the kind of fallout of it? But you're right. There's definitely the sense of the kind of misery of those people. And actually, Eddington points it out in, um, the episode for the uniform at the very beginning when Cisco goes, goes undercover, actually like Javert, you know, he goes in plain clothes, goes down to try and sort of infiltrate this marquee planet or whatever it is, these kind of caves that they're living in, uh, and encounters Eddington. And they have this discussion and Eddington says, look at these people. You know, these people are poor. These people are, are struggling to survive. They're struggling to eat. You know, these are not, they, they do not look like Federation citizens as we expect to see them. They do look like the poor in Les Miserables because Les Miserables is a novel, um, and in its, various associated adaptations is not just about this kind of, you know, this issue of justice kind of pervades it and justice in a kind of broader sense and moral justice and so on. Uh, and, and the idea of a revolution and trying to kind of build a new world and all this sort of thing. But it's not just about, in a sense, the state versus the people. It's also, it is also about, you know, it's called Les Miserables, which is translated in various different ways, the wretched ones or the kind of um uh, the poor ones. And poverty is a big element of it, you know, and we see a lot of these kind of street kids. We see these characters who are really thrown into awful situations in life uh, because of the hand that they're dealt one way or another. Uh, I mean, Fontaine, for example, who's the, the mother of Cosette, is this woman who, because she's had this relationship with this guy, and, and this I think was done really well in the BBC adaptation as well. She has this kind of period of, of time going out with this guy, ends up pregnant, and then he basically abandons her. And she is thrown into this situation where when it's discovered that she has a child and that therefore she has this sort of checkered past, she loses her job in Jean Valjean's um, factory. Uh, she ends up becoming a prostitute. She ends up selling her hair, selling her teeth. You know, I mean, she's, she's absolutely, it's, so it's, it's incredibly sad. And I mean, in every adaptation, it's, it's heartbreaking. I actually think that I was watching the musical, the film and the musical recently. And I think as much as I like the BBC adaptation, I think Anne Hathaway's performance as Fontaine is for me even more kind of heartbreaking because I think she absolutely nails it and she manages to, sell the kind of real misery of that character through the, mu- you, you know, the fact that it's a musical doesn't sort of work against that somehow. Like she absolutely nails that performance and that way of kind of marrying the the style of the musical to the kind of truth of the emotional truth of that situation. And it's absolutely heartbreaking uh, story. And over and over again in this story, I mean, we talked a couple of weeks ago about unrequited love. We were talking about Eponine, the character who is in love with Marius and actually ends up sacrificing herself on the barricade to save his life. He doesn't even realise it's her at first. She's dressed up as a man. And that kind of tragedy, I mean, both those characters, interestingly, are women who, you know, and Hugo, Victor Hugo is obviously aware of this, The these women whose lives have been destroyed by their associations with men one way or another. So they both fell in love you know, Eponine fell in love with Marius. Um, Fontaine fell in love with, what is his name? Ptolemyus or something. Anyway, the, the sort of dashing young guy who, who loves her and leaves her. And it destroyed their lives. And there's an interesting, I suppose you could say there's an interesting parallel in For the Cause because there we have, not to the same extent, but we have this same idea of Cisco being compromised by his girlfriend, by the fact that he's got this relationship with Cassidy. And, and what does that 
uh what's the impact of that when it turns out that she's you know kind of up to no good but i mean hugo is absolutely is a very um compassionate human being a very compassionate writer i mean i think that the novel it it feels very familiar if you're used to the works of dickens if you're used to these kind of this victorian sentimental melodrama i suppose where there is a real kind of deep sympathy for people in terrible situations a sympathy for the poor a kind of you know it's not socialism in a sort of political sense but i mean a lot of early reviews of the novel i think felt that hugo was too sympathetic to the revolutionaries and i suppose the thing is it's partly because he set up the social conditions of the time and how awful ordinary people's lives were so in a way there there is a link between that kind of basic awfulness of of miserable life for all these people and this kind of social political revolutionary political action at the end and the, and the recent bbc adaptation i think did quite a good job because it the very final scene i thought was quite interesting where basically we sort of had the happy ending in a sense the young couple got married jean valjean died because he he has to die and, and sort of you know end his story and then the very final like sort of maybe 30 second scene of the adaptation was just these street kids again begging on the street. Just this sort of reminder that, okay, yes, so we might have got a happy ending for this young couple, but the kind of misery and the injustice of, of the world in a sense goes on. And there are people still suffering, you know, even today they could have been, it could have been 2019, not 18, whatever it is, 1830 something. Yeah. So what you're talking about as well is also a class system. So Fantine, falls in love with somebody who is not the same class as her. And he has no intention of marrying her, not just because like she's had sex with him and had his child, but because, which I, I assume would bring disgrace in those, in that era. But it's also because she's, she's so lower class. She's a factory worker and he's, he's, you know, this young aristocrat in the city who's away from his estate. Who's, I think they're supposed to be studying in the city or something. At least they're sowing their wild oats. So, there's definitely class, class throughout the book. And I wonder, did you think that that sort of theme was reflected in For the Uniform? Because I sort of felt it was a little bit. Like like the Maki are these poor civilians. They're quite different than the sort of empowered, um, sort of educated, I would say trained Starfleet officers. Like the people on the Defiant, have a role in life you know they have a they have a purpose they have safety security they're also part of the federation and the maquis are now like you said they've been rejected from the federation they've been actually ejected they've been thrown out of the federation and they do just look like poor civilians so is there a class system as well reflected in that, that well, sort of story arc I mean, I would say typically in the Federation, you know, we assume the Federation is a kind of classless society. It's a post-capitalist society. It doesn't have, you don't get Federation citizens begging on the streets and so on. At the same time, it does feel like they've slipped through the net because they've lost their, they've literally lost their status as Federation citizens. They are refugees, you know, it is a kind of refugee camp in a sense, you know, in one sense, what we're seeing there. They're these kind of displaced, like I say, there is this kind of link, I think, with this kind of, these poor, wretched people. That's what they've become as a result of this um, treaty. And I suppose we are supposed to think, I mean, you know, Cisco and Starfleet and any number of people would say, well, they've chosen that, you know, they could have taken the relocation that they were offered. They've chosen to stay there and, you know, be miserable in a sense. But 
it does certainly feel like the Federation has kind of turned their back on these people um, and their rights are not the normal rights that a Federation citizen would be expected to enjoy are not, you know, they don't have those rights anymore and they are kind of really slipping into poverty and into misery and into this kind of um, terrible, terrible situation. And I suppose it's no coincidence that the, the mucky story works best in DS9. I mean, this is a story that was kind of um, developed when they were wrapping up Next Generation. That's why you had episodes like Journey's End, which kind of set it up. You have obviously Preemptive Strike, which is a mucky storyline with Rolaren. Um, and the, but the whole concept of the mucky was designed for Voyager. That's where they, you know, it's when they were dreaming up the plot for Voyager. They needed to have these kind of rebels. They wanted to have these two crews to integrate. And yet, arguably, you know, as, as many people have said in Voyager, they kind of fumbled it in that they basically put them in Starfleet uniforms straight away. The integration was far too straightforward. Pretty quick. Um, exactly. It was yeah. extremely quick. Whereas DS9 really kind of ran with it and it, and took it seriously. And I think that's because DS9 was always much more comfortable with this kind of shades of grey storytelling, more comfortable with kind of slightly undermining the, uh, PR about the Federation and how great it was with kind of showing other sides to it. And it's not surprising in a way that that, that storyline about the mucky landed best in DS9. But I think there is a kind of, more generally, you could say that, it, you know, it, it surprises me in some ways that Dax is so down on Les Miserables. Uh, and, you know, it is sentimental, it is romantic, it is melodramatic and so on. But I think it actually has quite a lot in common with Star Trek. I mean, Les Miserables is a very kind of humanistic, compassionate novel. It's this enormous compassion for all these ordinary people who are suffering. And there's also this kind of attempt to, uh, I suppose, present a view of morality, which is not the kind of traditional view of Javert, who feels like, you know, they're, 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 in a sense, the aristocracy behave themselves and are good and the kind of common peasants are criminals and untrustworthy and so on. All those kind of assumptions. But the novel has this kind of idea that, you know, the, the sinner can become a saint, that the, the kind of ordinary uh, man, you know, who has committed a crime and has lived in the galleys as a slave and so on, and as punishment and so on, can be the most virtuous character there is and there's this real um spiritual side to that and you you see that in the musical there's this i mean you know in the musical you have that kind of um that refrain of these kind of it, it sounds quite church like the the music that you get which is i can't sing it but if you if you think of like if you're familiar with the music from Lemis, you it's these kind of falling notes it's this kind of beautiful sequence of these 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 like falling notes and it sounds quite kind of church like it sounds quite kind of religious and it's the music that plays it, it, it sort of seems to represent Jean Valjean's conscience in a sense. It's his kind of moral awakening because it starts when he has this situation early on where he's been taken in, he's been shown mercy by this bishop. Uh, and then it, instead of seeing that as an opportunity to change, he's stolen the bishop's uh, silverware. And then the police come round, they arrest him and he's going to go back to the galleys for life, basically, because he's, he's broken his parole. And the bishop lies to save him. The bishop says that he gave him the stuff and he says, you know, and but furthermore, you forgot these candlesticks and he gives him these candlesticks as well, which again, in the BBC adaptation, I thought it was quite nice. You, you see these candlesticks all the way through to the kind of to the very end. They're this kind of emblem, in a sense, of what he's been given. And what he's been given, I suppose, is a second chance. And the bishop says to him, you know, you know, you can be a good man now. You can reinvent yourself, make the most of it, make the most of this opportunity that you've had. And there's this real crisis for Jean Valjean. It's not easy 
doing the right thing. It's not easy kind of becoming a better person. And there are kind of setbacks along the way. And in, um, you know, in the story, there's this kind of crucial moment where he realises, and, and he has come along where he's reinvented himself. He's made all this money. He's become a success. He's the mayor of this town. He's basically put his old life behind him. And then there's this crisis because he discovers that another man has been identified as Jean Valjean and is going to be sent to the galleys for life. Um, and the only person who can save him is him if he turns himself in, basically. In the musical, this is the crisis, which is that the song is called Who Am I? And that's the real question. You know, who am I? What kind of a man am I? Am I going to save myself or am I going to essentially throw my entire life away to save a stranger, a man I've never met because it's the right thing to do? And in fact, of course, that's what he does. And that in itself, I think, is a very kind of Star Trek moment, you know, right going back all the way to the Corbomite manoeuvre or something like that. You know, you see these kind of gestures of compassion, of totally selfless behaviour. That's, you know, as they say in Discovery, we are Starfleet. That's kind of the answer. Who am I? I? I'm Starfleet. You know, that's how Star Trek would put it. I do the right thing, even if it means losing my own life, even if it means destroying my own life. Um, I'm always going to kind of do right by other people. And it's this kind of real, it, it is this kind of real moment of, of compassion, I think. And you see that in the musical because he has this line, um, who am I? Can I condemn this man to slavery? Pretend I did not feel his agony. And that's the key thing, I suppose. You know, Javert doesn't sympathise. He doesn't empathise. He has no pity for the poor people who are suffering, who might be committing crimes because they're struggling to eat. Uh, there's no kind of awareness of their suffering. Jean Valjean, partly because he's been through it, because he's, you know, he's been through the galleys, he's he's had this experience. He he is this sort of Christ-like figure in a sense who really understands other people, who really pities them, who has this kind of deep compassion. And insofar as, you know, you might say that compassion is the kind of core, I don't know, sort of core moral foundation of Star Trek in some ways. I, th- I think there is that kind of similarity there. There is, you know, there is something about this story and this kind of the moral outlook of this book that actually for me fits quite well with Star Trek more generally. Yeah, I agree with you. I think on the surface of it, it sort of seems like an unusual material for Star Trek. Star Trek's quite utopian and Les Miserables is such a, a story about so many, so many people suffering, but also it's also about, I mean, by showing people suffering, you also get the reader to think about, the opposite, which is a society where people aren't brutalized in in prison, where people aren't condemned for being poor, like the whole undeserving poor idea, you know, so so stealing a loaf of bread because you're starving wouldn't be a capital offense, that kind of thing. So I think in showing this, this these injustices, Victor Hugo does get us to think about what we would change about that and get us to think about the opposite, which is actually quite utopian, which is very much fits in with Star Trek. I think the thing about Eddington, though, is that really, I keep banging on about this, but really, I think he isn't as compassionate as he likes to think. I think, I, th- I think the Les Miserables is a fantasy, fantasy for him. And Cisco says this in For the Uniform. He says he's, he sort of implies that he's living through a fantasy and that a hero can only be a hero if he has to sacrifice himself. And that's not true and that's not true in star trek either there are plenty of heroic acts where people aren't sacrificing themselves we remember the big heroic acts like spock sacrificing himself you know in the wrath of khan we remember the big dramatic ones but there's lots of little moments in star trek where people are heroic simply through doing the right thing that that's maybe difficult making a difficult decision 
that they don't want to make uh, because it's the right thing to do. And not necessarily sacrificing their lives, you know, or playing out some big fantasy. And I think that that's where Eddington really falls down. So it's great that they chose Les Miserables as a, as, as a sort of inspirational subject, inspirational uh, story, and they incorporate the themes into these episodes in Deep Space Nine. But I think it's also interesting that they also kind of subverted it as well by giving a man who truly is very, very unlikable the main role of Jean Valjean. Do you see what I'm saying? Like the fact that they, in in a way, they're sort of asking you to look at Les Miserables and look at the themes of Les Miserables, but they're also uh, asking you to see how they truly do not fit with Eddington's view of himself or of the Maquis. He hasn't got that level of empathy. He is willing to sacrifice these people. I mean, obviously at the very end, he, he hands himself in. But as Cisco says, you're giving these people false hope. You're leading these people into a war and look at them. They're civilians. They're starving. You know, they're injured. They're, they're not soldiers. They aren't Starfleet officers. They're not equipped for this. And so right away, even though Cisco appears to be the villain of the piece, and at the very end, Jadzia does say, you know, I like it. I sometimes like it when the villains win or whatever. And I'm thinking that's a very odd line for her to say, because that doesn't seem like the kind of thing Jadzia would say, because she's a very moral person. And But I think you're supposed to really think, you're supposed to believe that Eddington is really risking like a huge amount in this situation. You know, this isn't just about fighting for what's right. He's He's going about it all the wrong way. He's using civilians as his like cannon fodder and he's destabilizing the entire region, which is going to lead out to lead it like to all out war. And it's going to lead to vast amounts of Federation casualties and probably Cardassian casualties as well. So I really, when he kept on calling Cisco Javert in the episode, I just kept on laughing to myself because I was like, you just don't get it. (laughs) And I think that's, This and is I your think fantasy. that's part of it. Yes, exactly. It's and a I selfish, think that's part egotistical of it. it's, fantasy. It's, it's all about ego. And I think that's what's quite interesting is that they reconstruct Eddington in these episodes around... And he's very different. I mean, if you think of Eddington like up to before... Well, and even in For the Cause, he's this kind of... He seems quite by the book. He seems a bit kind of... Almost a bit of a sort of pencil pusher kind of guy. You know, he's 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 very kind of selfish. He's very about doing everything properly. Uh, he doesn't have that much personality. Suddenly we discover he has this whole rich kind of fantasy life where he's, he's almost like Barclay in the holodeck. You know, he's got this kind of romantic idea of himself. And that's what Cisco and Dax are kind of talking about in For the Uniform, that they've got this insight into Eddington's personality. And it is all about him. It's all about ego. The idea of sacrificing himself, he's not really sacrificing himself selflessly. He's sacrificing himself because he wants to be seen as the hero. He wants to make a grand heroic gesture. And, you know, you do see characters in Star Trek who are very self-sacrificing. I mean, the number of times Janeway sets the self-destruct and kind of plans to blow herself up one way or another, you know, it sometimes feels like she's a bit obsessed with this idea of kind of, um, you know, of doing the heroic thing. But you don't feel it's really about ego. It's very much for the Starfleet officers. It's kind of like, it's about doing the right thing. It's about, you know, it's almost there's no kind of choice in that situation. That's what you have to do. It's like in, um, I can't, I think I might have mentioned this before on a podcast, you know, in the David Tennant's last episode of Doctor Who, if you remember that one, he has to sacrifice himself, the, the reason that the doctor dies. And it was a kind of plot point because they, there'd been this whole thing about he will knock four times. And the assumption was the master was going to kill him because then there was all this knock it banging of drums and so on. And in fact, the reason he dies is because this kind of quite ordinary guy who's, um, what's his name? Mott or something. 
like like the barber in Star Trek. Uh, it needs to be saved, basically. And he quite reluctantly realises, okay, I'm going to have to sacrifice myself to save this silly old man who's who's got himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he doesn't want to do it, but it's kind of, and it's not about some grand gesture. It's just like, that's the right thing to do. That's the only thing he can do, in a sense. And I, and I think often, you know, Spock, for example, sacrificing himself it is very moving, but partly what's moving about it is he does it without even telling anyone what he's doing. You know, that's what's kind of so sad. And it's only when you see that shot of the empty chair and Kirk is like suddenly, oh my God, where's Spock? You know, what's he, what's he done? Uh, it's sort of almost the opposite of this grand heroic gesture. It's like he's, he's, he's done it privately, quietly without anyone noticing. And that maybe is more sort of the Starfleet way. I was just thinking when you, when you were talking earlier about utopianism and this idea like where does sort of federation utopianism fit in and how the Marquis of kind of, you know, obviously no longer living in this utopian society. I mean, I'd say Les Miserables because it has this religious side to it. I mean, it is a kind of, there is a kind of humanist religion in it in a sense in that it's kind of, it's willing to see the kind of ordinary man as the kind of moral, spiritual centre of the story in a sense. It does also have this kind of strong belief in God and, and the afterlife and so on. And really the, the utopia for the, the miserable people in that story is the utopia that comes after death. And you see that even in, you, you know, in the, in the musical of Les Miserables, you see it quite explicitly because it ends with, you know, Jean Valjean dies, uh, Fantine kind of comes to, to summon him to the afterlife in a sense. And the musical manages to end on a kind of upbeat note because all the dead martyrs in a sense are not brought back to life but the this is the idea that they sort of continue somewhere that there's and there's this sort of idea that the okay so the france that they were fighting for the future that they wanted to build this kind of new society never happened in the real world but at the same time in in heaven there is this kind of it is almost this kind of perfect society that they wanted to build. So I suppose there is that kind of connection there with the, the heavens in the sense of the, the planets and the kind of intergalactic, not intergalactic, the interplanetary setup of the Federation as this utopian society. And in Hugo's worldview and the kind of traditional worldview, the idea that that's, that's what you get after you die is this kind of perfect world where, you know, there is no oppression and there is no misery and there is no poverty and there is no starvation and so on. And so you get that, that kind of worldview. But it's interesting, you know, just talking about the kind of worldview in the novel, it reminded me a little bit <laughs> reading this book, even on the audio book, of the discussion of this Cardassian epic, The Never Ending Sacrifice, which, you know, this is that discussion between Bashir and, um, Garrick about this great work of Cardassian literature that seems to go on and on and on. And this kind of idea of repetition and, and the way that this story kind of repeats itself over and over again. And I mean, Les Mis is, it is a very long story. Uh, if you're familiar with it from the musical, as many people I think are, uh, I mean, I, I really like the musical. I think, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I find it very moving, but it is also kind of relentlessly, deliberately repetitive because you've got these kind of musical refrains, which are repeated over and over and over and over again, you know, much more than a, a normal sort of traditional musical would be. There is this kind of sense of this world that keeps revolving and the same kind of miseries keep happening to other people. And it kind of, I don't know, there's something kind of overwhelming about that somehow. Uh, yeah. And that kind of goes against the idea of like a story arc about obsessive justice though, doesn't it? Because like, I'm thinking about something like Moby Dick, you know, which, you know, is another obsessive quest, right? And another and novel that is far too long as well. <laughs> not, yeah. <laughs> also, also you could watch a movie about that. <laughs> I just want to emphasize. <laughs> I want to do an audiobook. But, you know, 
there's this idea that an obsessive quest has to come to an end, doesn't it? I mean, unless it's just some sort of epic quest that goes on through time where two individuals are kind of circling each other like two planetary bodies or something, trying to constantly pursue each other. But there's this idea that a quest has to come to an end. It has a start and an end. And that doesn't fit with the whole like repetitive, repetitive suffering motif of Les Miserables. I mean, Javert does end up dead. So, spo- spoiler alert to anyone who doesn't know. He does end up dead, uh, as, as so does Valjean, actually. So, and I feel like, I mean, I was just trying to think of any other, like, sort of obsessive um, kind of quests. Like, I'm thinking about, like, Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty or something, you know, where they... Um, they, you know, they get to Rhineback Falls and then, you know, they're sort of wrestling with each other, falling into the, the waterfall. And, but there is something kind of timeless about that, isn't there? About two people sort of wrestling with each other continually. Like, well, we see it with Cisco and Gold to Cut in, um, What You Leave Behind, which is basically the Reichenbach Falls <laughs> Mark II in a sense, isn't it? Wrestling with each <laughs> other over the, into the fire caves or whatever. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I think there is that idea of these two, that there's this idea of this kind of equivalence between the two of them. And I think arguably you could say that, you know, yes, one is pursuing and one is being pursued, but they're both kind of defined by this hunt. In a, when we talk about, you know, Tosk or the, the, these kind of hunting episodes, you kind of see something similar, I suppose. They're both defined by the fact that one of them is hunting the other one. They both reach this point at the end where they let the other one go. And it's this real kind of moment of, I mean, basically when Jean Valjean lets Javert go, he also, he's, he says, I'm going to let you go. I'm probably going to die tonight. If I don't, this is my address. You can come and arrest me tomorrow. He's basically decided not to run anymore. He's kind of decided his life's at an end. He essentially gives himself up and then Javert lets him go. So there's this weird, again, there's this kind of weird symmetry between the two of them. Um, and then of course, once Javert commits suicide, Jean Valjean gets ill and dies weirdly i mean and it's never really explained what exactly is he dying of is it old age is it just that kind of he has nothing left to there's a strange sense i think that almost he has nothing left to live for because his kind of counterpart has gone and his kind of insofar as his life was all about evading justice and evading this kind of thing that's pursuing you which you could say you know it's like death i mean you, you know you said they both die i mean everyone dies don't they that's the kind of the linear trajectory that we're all on and that's kind of what's what's coming you know javert's coming for all of us in the end but there's this kind of interesting parallel between the two <laughs> of them and, um, podcast here yeah sorry <laughs> we did warn you at the beginning um but uh there was a great line actually in the andrew davies bbc adaptation uh which is not a scene in fact that is not in the novel but that Andrew Davis added, which I thought was fantastic, which is this conversation between Javert and Valjean towards the end, which is sort of there, I think, because, you know, on TV, you can't get inside the characters' heads to the same extent as you can in a novel. So they have to talk about things that they, they, they didn't talk about in the actual book. But there's this great point where Javert is sort of saying to Jean Valjean, you know, what, what's he doing and what, what's he been up to and so on. And, and he's asking about Marius and, and he says, um, you know, you saved that man's life because, because, Valjean goes to great lengths and great efforts to save Maris's life. He drags him through the sewers. Uh, he, he brings him back to his grandfather's house, all because he knows that his adoptive daughter, Cosette, is in love with him. Even though initially, when his first reaction was, this young man is going to take my daughter away from me. And he wanted to, he wanted to kill him, essentially. He, you know, he was really saw him as an enemy. And so 
Javert says to Jean Valjean, you know, you, you must, something like, you know, that, that man must mean a lot to you. You must be close to him or whatever. You must care about him a lot. And he says, no, not at all. Quite the opposite or whatever. And again, Javert can't really process why would this man risk everything to save someone who, in a sense, is, is, he says something about, you know, he, he was going to take away everything that's most precious to me. Um, and they have this great conversation where Javert says to Jean Valjean, are you insane? And he replies, no, I don't think so. Are you? And that's really the central question, I suppose, is which of them, because as far as Javert is concerned, Jean Valjean's behaviour is sort of rationally incomprehensible because he's, you know, he is this kind of criminal who does good things. He is this kind of, this man who doesn't appear to act in his own self-interest. He doesn't act by the rules. He doesn't seem to follow any, because he follows a sort of moral code. He follows his conscience rather than anything more kind of um, sort of laid down in, in law in a sense. So he sees Jean Valjean as not only a criminal, but as kind of mad. Ultimately, what the story is telling us is that Javert is the one who's mad. And that's why he's the one who commits suicide, because he can't bend. He can't take a situation on its own terms. And it reminds me a little bit, actually, talking about Star Trek, of um, the Next Generation episode, Justice. Funnily enough, you know, since we're talking about justice and what justice is like. And, you know, that's the pretty silly early episode where Wesley gets sentenced to death for walking on the grass and and, uh, and so on. <laughs> and everyone runs around in these kind of um, extraordinarily revealing outfits talking about what they're going to do at the drop of a hat, any hat. But um, there is this, the thing that I quite like about that episode, which is not a, a next gen at its finest hour, is that speech that Picard gives at the end. He gives this great speech about justice where he says, he says, there can be no justice so long as laws are absolute. And that's the idea basically is that justice requires uh, flexibility, mercy. It's, it's you know, from Shakespeare, it's the quality of mercy is not strained. It's that kind of idea that, you, you, you know, that justice requires human beings to make good decisions and to act with compassion and to act with kind of heart as well as kind of cold logic, I suppose. You, you know, and in that sense, you could say Javert is like some sort of Vulcan, you know, inspector kind of, uh, very much following the rules, kind of doing the right thing, but never really, never really opening his heart to other people, never really experiencing that kind of compassionate epiphany that, you know, that is, that Jean Valjean experiences and that is so much a key part of Star Trek. I mean, you know, even all the way through to Enterprise, where you have an observer effect, Archer saying uh, he has this argument about uh, compassion and judgment. He says, my compassion guides my judgment. And that's the kind of Star Trek way. That's the Jean Valjean way. It's about kind of, you know, doing the right thing and doing the right thing does not mean following the rules necessarily. And there's that interesting question. I mean, we talked about, you know, you betrayed your uniform. That's the line from which the episode takes its name. Um, and Eddington says, and now you're betraying yours. And I suppose there's this question, you know, is Cisco betraying his Starfleet uniform in the way he's behaving and so he's become so obsessed? Is Javert betraying the uniform of a policeman? I mean, is, is Javert a brilliant policeman? Or an awful policeman? That, I suppose, you could say is a central question. He's a brilliant policeman on paper. You know, he's going to get all the promotions. He's probably got the highest statistics of the number of people arrested. You know, he always gets his man. He's very much, by the by the rules of the game that he thinks he's playing, he's playing it very successfully. But is that what you want? That's not justice. Do you know what I mean? And, and you know, you could say, okay, so that's the policeman's job. And then maybe the judge or someone further along the line is the one who's supposed to moderate that. But is that really what you want in a policeman? Someone who has no sympathy, who has no flexibility, who, you know, or do you want someone, you know, more like typically Cisco, given the kind of things that go on on DS9, who's going to turn a blind eye now and then when someone's to 
something they probably shouldn't be and make sort of, I suppose, small moral judgments on a case by case basis rather than it being about slavishly following the rules. You know, which, which of those is, it, does the uniform just represent the rules in a sense, or does the uniform, especially if it's a Starfleet uniform, represent something a bit more noble than just following the rules? It represents a kind of ideal. It represents a kind of uh, mindset or a set of values. I guess it depends on who's making the rules and what the rules are for and how they were devised. And I think this is where Les Miserables and Star Trek separate. So the rules in Star Trek, the the main rule, the big rule that everyone breaks all the time is the prime directive. And that is a situation where people do break that rule because of empathy and compassion and because of morality. You know, they say to themselves, I can't keep this, I can't abide by this rule because this whole civilization, this planet are going to die you know, we have a connection with them, all sorts of stuff like that. But in Les Miserables, the rules, I suppose you could say it's keeping society ordered, preventing people from stealing. But it's quite clear in the book that there are people stealing all the time and getting away with it, you know, and that there are people breaking the rules hit left, right and centre and not being chain ganged <laughs> and enslaved and imprisoned for 20 years. I got the sense, I could be wrong, that Victor Hugo thinks the Jean Valjean's treatment in prison and his him being sent to prison for stealing a loaf of bread for his initial crime is actually an injustice. And that the rules are made in Les Miserables to benefit a certain section of society and to keep another section of society down, to keep them impoverished, to keep them disenfranchised, to keep them enslaved. And that's not something that you have in Star Trek, I think. Not, not in the Federation necessarily. I guess the only thing that's slightly murky is that if you really were going to go by empathy and compassion and not the rules, then you might side with the Maquis. Especially some of the earlier episodes where it's like, you know, these ethnic minorities have found their little, you know, home on a planet, their little colony on a planet, and that they think their ancestors have sent them there and this ancestral land and all that sort of thing. That's really hard to argue against you know, in terms in terms of compassion and empathy. But I think Les Miserables is a, a world of injustice. And I think Star Trek is trying to move beyond that injustice and sort of say, yeah, there is injustice, because obviously there's the Cardassians and the Bajorans and, you know, the Maquis are also suffering an injustice. It's just that they have to sacrifice their freedom in order for the safety of the greater good, I suppose, but they're like separatists, basically, aren't they? But it's it's asking us how we're going to move towards this more justice-driven society, how we're going to get there, and also what a more justice-driven society would look like. It's interesting that you don't see many Star Trek prisons. Uh, you don't see many Federation prisons. As I have actually, there's a very good novel called Black Fire, which is a Star Trek novel in which Spock gets sent to a Federation prison. And the way they describe it, is I mean, it's not Ruripenthe, it's not a Klingon prison. And I think you expect that Klingon prisons and Romulan prisons and Dominion prisons and Cardassian prisons are going to be horrific, right? Because they're more totalitarian, less Federation-like societies, right? But actually, Spock gets sent to this Federation prison for, I mean, I'm not going to spoil the novel, so I won't tell you what it's for, but uh, the, the actual prison is horrific, it's horrible. And there's bullying and he gets beaten up and he has to sort of like 
make um, friends in the prison to kind of survive. Obviously, he gets out of prison because <laughs> Star Trek continues on and everything. And it's set, it's set during the five-year mission, I think. So it's set during the earlier days of the original series. But, you know, you don't really get a sense of what, what happened to Michael when she was in prison, when she was put in prison for mutiny, stroke treason. And, like, Star Trek just sort of shies away from crime and punishment in that in that respect. There aren't... You don't really see what happens to... You know, the, the fraudsters and the scammers and the thieves and the, you know, the murderers, because there must still be murder, you know, so you don't really see that. And I think that's because Star Trek's trying to present a more just world rather than focusing so much on the real serious injustices that exist in Les Miserables, which are like totally legal. It's legal in, in Les Miserables to treat prisoners that way. You know, and so Javert's, you know, he's like abiding by the law of the land. He's doing his job, I suppose. You could say he's abiding by the law, but he's not realizing that the law is unjust. So actually, he's an unjust policeman, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah. And that's why the, the book, I suppose, is, you know, is subversive in some ways. And, and at the time when it was published, some people felt it was irresponsible in a sense, because it is absolutely saying that just because something's legal doesn't mean that it's right and that the you know the laws themselves may be immoral the the political situation at the time may be immoral and victor hugo as well i think um correct me if i'm wrong but i think he was writing this novel as an exile was he not a political exile because he was i think he was living in guernsey at the time that he was writing this certainly he was exiled uh, at one point and, and and basically had to leave france so i think he had some experience of this kind of I suppose that, that kind of disaffection in a sense with the regime and that kind of idea of, of, of representing an alternative or kind of being at odds with the regime one way or another. And that, and that sense of injustice and certainly that kind of feeling of injustice is something that is shot through the novel from beginning to end in a sense, the kind of tragedy of this world in which, you know, ordinary sort of decent deserving people are miserable and suffering but also you know some people are bad and they're not necessarily you know some of the bad people um are you know there there are bad people in the in the novel at all levels of society i mean there's there's the guy who gets fontaine pregnant and and runs off who as you say is this kind of aristocrat um there's tenardier who's the kind of villain who's the kind of roguish villain of the story and i, I would say actually of all the if you only know Les Miserables through the musical, I think you don't get a very good sense of what that character is about because the Thenardier uh, couple in the musical are played very much as comic relief. You know, in the film, you've got Sasha Baron Cohen and um, Helena Bonham Carter really kind of camping it up. It's quite ridiculous and silly. They're these kind of comedy roguish characters. But, you know, in the novel and in the BBC adaptation, I think they captured this really well. The guy who played... I mean, Olivia Coleman was playing Madame Tenardier. I think she was fine. But the guy who played Tenardier was absolutely amazing. I think he gave the best performance of the whole show for me because he's just such a nasty piece of work, that character. And, you know, he's this kind of sort of fairly poor, sort of self-made guy, but he just has no compassion, no principles, no morals, no nothing. And he just, in every situation, he tries to turn 
you know, turn it to his advantage, try to make a buck out of it, extorting money out of people, happy to murder people if it suits him, uh, happy to turn a blind eye to other people's crimes, you know, absolutely appalling person. And there are other people in the novel who, again, you know, who behave badly. So for example, when Fontaine, it's discovered that she has this child, you know, the, the reaction of her co-workers and of the, the people who kind of sort of bully her out of the job in a sense and so on. Again, there's that, you know, I don't think Hugo is saying that it's just the institutions that are corrupt and are immoral. He's also aware that human beings can be decent and can suffer, but also human beings can behave appallingly with appalling cruelty one way or another to each other. And that's, again, is sort of part of the tragedy of it is that, you know, unfortunate people can be taken advantage of, can be, you know, really treated badly by others. And that for Jean Valjean is the key, one one of the key moments on his kind of path to you know, pass from sort of criminality to, to sort of righteousness or whatever, his kind of journey that he's on is there are setbacks. So first of all, you know, he, he, he's given this ch- chance by the bishop to sort of reinvent himself. And then he steals. And this is something which is not in the musical, but is in the, you know, was in the BBC adaptation. He, he steals this, uh, 40 sous, I think, from this little boy, totally, petty sort of meaningless crime insofar as the amount of money involved is almost nothing but it's you know he, he's sort of taken a step backwards he's taken a step back into criminality again and he feels incredibly guilty about it that he's done this terrible thing and even years later you, you saw in the bbc adaptation he still had that money he'd never spent it he'd kind of kept it as this again one of these kind of um emblems of his kind of moral development and then crucially it's you know, it's in his factory that Fontaine is working and it's his failure of compassion for Fontaine at the moment when all is exposed that he, he doesn't help her at that point. He kind of, you know, lets her be, you, you know, he, he throws her out on the street basically. And it's that moment of a kind of failure of compassion that sets her on this journey down to becoming a prostitute, selling her hair, selling her teeth and so on and into misery and that she ultimately dies of. And that's why he has such terrible guilt when he realizes that actually you know he could have saved her at that point he could have shown compassion to her and he didn't uh and on some level he i suppose he accepts responsibility for her situation in a way that no one else really accepts responsibility for the suffering of others that occurs thanks to them in that novel and that's why the whole second half of the novel or more probably the second two-thirds of the novel is you know is about him and Cosette the daughter that he adopts basically he adopts her because he knows that his that that he's in part responsible for the death of her mother one way or another so it's his way of kind of trying to expiate that guilt in a sense so i suppose that's part of it is it's not just that he's his opportunities change and that he you know it's not like a magical epiphany where one one moment he's bad and the next he's good it's hard work for him and there are setbacks along the way but it's that kind of part of it is that kind of guilt and that sense of moral responsibility and that sense of compassion for someone else that that sort of propels him, keeps him going in the right direction, keeps him on the right track all throughout his life. So does Cisco end up having compassion for Eddington? Like, as in, is that kind of reflected in Deep Space Nine? Like, does he, in the end, end up sort of seeing things from Eddington's point of view or regretting some of the decisions that he's made in his pursuit of Eddington and his, like, uh, prosecution, I wouldn't say persecution because Eddington is a traitor, but like his prosecution of of him. Well, I don't know. What do you, I mean? I, I don't think we see that in for the uniform. Maybe in Blaze of Glory, I think he he develops a sort of grudging respect for him 
to some extent by the end. But it's difficult because he's not, he, I, I would say his pursuit is different from Javert's because as I say, Javert's is very kind of cool and calm. And it's like, as far as Javert's concerned, this is a case that has to be solved. This is a, a wrong that has to be righted. It's quite kind of mechanical in a sense. It's like the, the world needs to be set to rights. This man needs to go back to prison where he belongs sort of thing. It's, it's, it's almost, it, it means a lot to him. Like it, it, it drives him, but it's, it's almost a kind of intellectual drive to kind of set things to write somehow. For Cisco, it's much more personal. It's the fact that he feels betrayed. And, you know, it's weird in some ways that his girlfriend betrayed him as well. He doesn't seem to have all this anger towards her. All the anger is directed at Eddington, who he feels personally betrayed by and personally angry with, which is why you get that outburst that, you know, you betrayed your uniform form outburst, which is what makes that episode so kind of iconic. And that's why you have that scene with the punch bag as well, where you see Cisco getting really angry and kind of and worked up and over the top. And you get this kind of performance from Avery Brooks of this kind of man absolutely on the edge. I've always thought there's a real problem in that episode with, I know everyone loves that, you know, you betrayed your uniform line. But I don't think the editor on that episode did a very good job because it's very obvious if you watch it that they must have shot different takes. And some of them, Avery Brooks was giving a bit more of a measured performance and some of them he just absolutely went for it and, you know, went off the wall. And the way that the, that that moment is edited, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't feel consistent if you watch it through. And maybe it's partly also that it cuts away to Eddington on the hollow thing for quite a while. And then you cut back to Cisco and he suddenly explodes out of nowhere and you, you haven't seen, I'm sure when he, you know, when they were filming it, there was a kind of build up and it sort of worked in the moment, but it's almost like, it the the shock of that moment is that it's so sort of over the top and so extreme but i always find it quite uncomfortable to watch because it does feel like it's not that the, the scene feels jarring to me because it seems to come slightly out of nowhere but i mean you could say that's a deliberate choice and that that's cisco's rage kind of boiling up out of nowhere and that kind of um that that there is something out of control about it so i don't know i mean what do you think do you think that he understands Eddington. I, I don't know. I sort of feel like he, he just sort of despises him at that point. I don't think he wants to understand him. And I suppose in the episode, he has to calm down and go and read Les Miserables, presumably not the whole thing, uh, and, and kind of do a they bit sort of, of play, analyzing. They? They, well, they do. I don't know how he managed. I mean, I don't know how long that mission was going on for, but, you know, <laughs> at least it all fits on one pad. He reads the Spark Notes version or yeah. something. <laughs> I couldn't help feeling when he was describing the plot to Jadzia. And he does say he's read it because, you know, Eddington offers him the book and he says, thank you, I've read it. And I was thinking, wow, you know, lucky you. But um, I don't know. Yeah, you, I kind of imagined he's he's reading the Spark Notes or like a, a plot synopsis or something rather than actually trudging through the whole thing. Because for the sake of a mission, you know, it, the first 15 chapters or something are about some bishop who has, you know, only a brief uh, moment in the plot. He, he's not going to even get to Javert if he's, <laughs> if he's on a deadline, you know, let alone find out that he commits suicide. I felt the one thing I didn't like about this episode, I mean, there were several things I didn't like, <laughs> but some of them were stylistic choices. Like, I didn't like the fact that they went on this really dangerous mission and they took a pregnant lady along. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that's a bit of a <laughs> stupid idea. I also don't, I didn't really enjoy like Nog sort of repeatedly shouting Cisco's. Oh, I love that. That's my favourite. I was going to say that's got nothing to do with the plot, really, with the, like the, the Les Miserables plot. That's my favourite bit of the episode. I mean, I understand the reason. I, I for love that it. kind of feel of it. Yeah. I mean, I like the, I like maybe the first few times he does it, but then right, towards okay. the end of the episode, I'm like, Starts oh my God, annoying. it's like an echo. I think <laughs> the thing that I really don't like about this, though, is that Cisco appears fairly out of character for me 
because in the episodes kind of preceding that and the episodes after, he's not like he's not. I mean, he's aggressive towards his own crew in this ep- in this episode. He's he's petulant towards other Starfleet captains or this other Starfleet captain, this one other guy, and he he just seems like furious and i get why they've done that and i get why he is furious i mean the punch bag scene was kind of good i could see him kind of getting some of his frustration out but he doesn't actually get any of his frustration out it just remains there and he just seems wildly over the top for this this episode and i understand why they did it but it it just continuity wise it doesn't seem to fit and i think if i was the writer (laughs) this is where i sort of get all arrogant and sort of say if i was in charge of star trek you can tell ira stephen bear this next time we see him <laughs> if he's By back way, in birmingham ira, next year let, yeah <laughs> let me uh, let me tell you what i would have done in your place um if i was the writer for this episode i would have written it from eddington's point of view so i would have written it like and eddington's an unreliable narrator right he's an unreliable viewpoint but i think that would have been a lot more interesting because I think then you would have been questioning, is Cisco really actually this angry? Is he really this outraged? Is he really this vengeful and uh, obsessed? Or is this Eddington's view? Because it's kind of a little bit like that already. Like, it's like Les Miserables and, and the themes in the story that are reflected in the episode are Eddington's fantasy. So we're kind of getting some of Eddington's fantasy and then some of Cisco's kind of outrage and sort of flying off the handle. And so it's like a mixing of the two, and I don't think it really works. I think I would do it from Eddie's point of view, and I'd have the audience wonder if Cisco really is losing it, or whether this is just an unreliable view from the traitor. Mm. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, you're right, it's definitely inconsistent. I mean, if you look at um, For the Cause and the way Cisco reacts in that episode when it's all actually happening, he's nowhere near as worked up as he is by this episode i suppose there is this suggestion because they do say that he's been he's spent the last however many months trying to hunt down eddington and we've never it's never been mentioned as far as i can remember on ds9 that that was going on but this was obviously you know kind of top of the list on cisco's desk for those months was you know deal with this eddington problem and he keeps failing to get it sorted so maybe that frustration has kind of built up and that kind of resentment and anger has built up but you're right it's it is out of character it's quite extreme but you could say the same, you know, it's a bit like the Borg in First Contact. Picard, you know, Picard in First Contact. Yeah, we know he was traumatised by the Borg. We know there are kind of hangovers from that. We see it in, say, I Borg, something like that. There's a kind of, you know, there's a lasting impact from that. But until you get to First Contact, there's no real hint of this kind of murderous, wild rage that Picard seems to have towards them, which you see, you know, in that scene on the holodeck where he's machine gunning them and so on. And I think it's quite similar. It's that idea of, I suppose, because, you know, both these stories, there are a situation where you have a, the captain is succumbing to this desire for revenge, which is very unstarfleet. It's very, very much not what we associate with a Starfleet captain. They shouldn't be kind of succumbing to this passionate desire for revenge. They should be keeping their cool. They should be doing the right thing and so on. And therefore it's kind of tricky to they can't really see that through a set of episodes because it is it is out of character. All they can do is say this is someone pushed to the brink and behaving, and they are, and, and behaving out of character. And I suppose with for the uniform with Cisco, they kind of salvage it because by the end, he he does do this awful thing, but at the same time, it's all quite calculated and quite um, 
sort of stage managed almost he's kind of bluffing eddington while he's doing it. i mean it's not a bluff insofar as he does actually do it but at the same time it's all a performance for eddington's benefit so there's that weird sort of question of like to what extent is how Cisco behaves genuine and to what extent is he actually acting for Eddington? You know, in the same way as Kirk, there's always that issue with the wrath of Khan, you know, Kirk's Khan, that scene that Kirk is actually acting for Khan, you know, he's kind of overplaying it because that's the the impression that he wants to give him. And there's that sort of slight confusion for an audience of when you have one character who's kind of playing something to the other character, how much of that is genuine and how much of it is an act. And unless you're kind of winking at the audience constantly and saying, oh, actually, he doesn't feel like this at all, it becomes quite blurred. And with Cisco, it's it's particularly blurred in this instance because we know he is really, really angry with Eddington and he does really hate Eddington. He does clearly want to punch him when he's punching that punch bag. And he, you know, in, in Blaze of Glory, he does get a chance to punch him and he, you know, knocks him over a load of barrels or something. So there is that kind of rage between them. I quite like it. I quite like that relationship, you know, even in that later episode where they have a lot of interactions and they clearly despise each other. I, I don't know. I find that quite entertaining to watch in a sense, that dynamic. I'm not sure I want him to be all that sympathetic to Eddington or vice versa. I mean, Eddington says to Cisco in that episode, I'm going to kill you one day, you, you know, we're going to have this out and, and you're going to die, basically, which is very un, you know, that's, that's just not Starfleet. That's not even Marquis. That's, that's pretty, um, brutal, isn't it? You know what I mean? <laughs> he wants revenge on Cisco, just as Cisco wanted revenge on him. And they're sort of locked in this, you know, they are these two, like you said, with Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty, or whatever, they are these two characters kind of locked in this weird relationship with each other, locked in this kind of conflict with each other. Uh, and, you know, neither willing to see the other person's point of view, even though Cisco can sympathise with the Marquis to some extent. And I think he does sympathise a bit more with, you know, his friend Cal, who who joins the Marquis in the episode, the Marquis, uh, and who we find out from Eddington was later killed. He He has more sympathy for him, I think. But Eddington, there's a real, it's just this kind of betrayal. He can't get past it, can he? And he can't get past it, as he says, you know, being made a fool of, this idea that he pulled the wool over his eyes and he, he made him look like an idiot. Yeah, and I think also because Eddington has so so much access to everything on the station and Deep Space Nine, they make it clear throughout the entire series, it's a home for many people. It's Cisco's home, it's his son's home. The station is... Every time the station's in danger or he has to leave the station, you know, as he does uh, several times in the series, like most notably in the Dominion uh, War, uh, it's it's a real blow, you know. You get the feeling that the station is a real safe harbour for all the characters who live on Deep Space Nine. So the idea that editing was there, like putting viruses in the computer and, you know, like an enemy in their midst... It's like, it's not just uh, being made a fool of, it's your sense of security has been destroyed. And I think that, you know, would make you react angrily and violently. But He's the spy. He's the Javert. I mean, Javert is a, is a famous spy. And he, you know, in Les Miserables, he goes undercover at the barricade yes, and then gets true. discovered. You know, arguably, you could say, Cisco could have come back to Eddington and said, hang on, you know. Which of us was playing the Javert role eight months ago or whatever <laughs> it was? You know? See, you could have written this episode too, Duncan. <laughs> Both of us could have done that. See, mine would have been slavishly following the, the you know, thousand odd pages of Les Miserables. <laughs> Yours would have been doing it from Eddington's perspective. But, you know, I, I like this episode. I, I really, I, I love it for lots of reasons. But, um, 
you know, and some of them are unconnected and some of them are kind of a bit random. I like the punch bag scene. I like the intensity of it. I, I love all that stuff when the Defiant basically isn't working and they decide to take it out anyway. And it's like some kind of old ship where people are like passing orders back and forth and, you know, they almost crash into the docking pylon. And so I, I quite enjoy all of that. I, I think it's quite exciting. I think the way it's directed is quite exciting, that bit. And I quite enjoy all the Eddington stuff. I'm not actually sure that the Les Miserables, I, I think it's, I think it feeds into this Marquis storyline quite well. And it's good that they sort of give it a name check, but I'm not really sure how much it helps the plot of that episode, if you know what I mean. Once, once Eddington starts banging on about Javert and calling Cisco Javert, it does get quite annoying quite quickly. And I don't really know how much I buy the fact that the whole problem of the episode is resolved by, you know, Cisco speed reading Les Mis, uh, <laughs> in between engagements, basically, and that that's going to be the key to solving it. Studying the book. Before we go, is there any other examples in Star Trek of vengeful quests or, uh, or revenge or like characters kind of losing it over revenge? I mean, I know you mentioned Picard and the Borg, and I guess you could mention Kirk and, and Khan. Although, interestingly, in the reboots, that's actually Spock and Khan. Spock sort of pursues him on moving vehicles and right, then sort okay, of puzzles yeah, him. I see what you mean. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. is there any other examples in Star Trek? Because I would think this is like an idea that Star Trek wouldn't want to champion revenge. Well, maybe the drumhead. I was, you know, you had the admiral in the drumhead who has kind of gone, uh, you, you know, and it's very much that idea of that kind of obsessive pursuit of justice and pursuit of the criminal, you know, this, and she is basically criminalizing people who are innocent in the same way as you could say Javert is kind of, you know, Javert sees Jean Valjean as a criminal, however many good things he's done and however much he's moved beyond his past and so on. He, he sees him as essentially a criminal and that, that admiral has very much that same kind of mindset and that kind of idea that there is something mad about it because she is kind of losing her grip by the end because she's become so kind of inflexible and so sort of paranoid, uh, in her, pursuit of justice as she sees it that she sort of turned herself into a monster i suppose that's that's the example that springs to mind for me um and that episode is very much again sort of picard taking you know pulling her back from the brink a bit being a bit more measured being a bit more reasonable i feel like if you're ever going to go on trial picard is probably the judge that you want you know he's he's very calm he's very measured he's quite and and, and and he's not above giving people a second chance yeah, as as we see in um, also yeah, pretty, pretty pretty good lawyer. Yeah, he was. He was <laughs> yeah, definitely, you'd you'd want him defending you. But I was just, I was just going to say, you know, in um, you know, in Lower Decks, for example, we find out he was the one who gave Cito Jaxa a second chance because he thought no one else would. He's actually quite keen on the idea that someone can redeem their past mistakes, that someone can change. And I suppose that's the thing that Javert just doesn't really believe anyone can change. He thinks you're. You, you know, you are what you are in a sense. And if you stole a loaf of bread once, then you're a criminal for life and you should be, no one should trust you, you know. Which is interesting coming from a man who was born to mm. parents who were criminals. So I think some of it is to do with his own psychology, uh, you know, his own sort of sense of shame about that bit of his background. Although I think they may probably, from what you're saying, they made more of that in the BBC adaptation than is actually poss- possibly in the book. It, no, I think that is. I can't remember how it, how much it came out in the. They, they, there was. They do talk about it in the BBC adaptation. It is definitely. It is that is mentioned in the book. Though fairly early on, I think, and I don't think it's picked up again. Whereas I think in the adaptation it comes out later, which maybe gives it a bit more weight. I loved the guy who played him in the 
BBC adaptation as well, incidentally. I mean, it's a very, it's quite different approach in some ways. You, you know, if you think compared to say Russell Crowe in the movie of the, of the musical, he just played him as a very sort of dogged, very diligent, kind of hardworking, it wasn't exactly maniacal or anything, his kind of obsession. It was, it was very much like by the book, kind of the guy who kind of clocks in at every morning and, and just seems like a very, he, he seemed believable as a policeman somehow. Do you know what I mean? He seemed to have this kind of procedural element down. And there was something kind of scary about that. I think there is something mad about that kind of pursuit of, I don't know, just doing what you're told, clocking in and kind of, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? He, he wasn't this kind of larger than life theatrical character. He felt very grounded somehow. Well, the inability to look at people on an individual basis as well, you know, sort of applying one law, one rule to everybody and then sticking to that rule, regardless of what damage it does to individuals. is actually kind of a frightening idea. Um, mm. And something that I think we do see actually in today's society and like when you think about immigration law and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. You know, He's the guy you don't law. want hearing your case. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> if, you, if you're trying to, you know, if you're, if you're, benefits have been stopped or something he's he's not the guy you want to be having a meeting with see because he's has just had no sympathy no interest you know basically couldn't care less it's just you know i, I do what it says on the screen <laughs> well it's been really interesting discussing uh les miserables uh, the idea of justice the idea of compassion and revenge in star trek but this is not the only subject that's been discussed on the network this week so here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on trek fm previously on trek.fm the Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. He's like, oh, we can't be vague. And he's like, I'm not doing it. Is that vague enough for you? Yeah. That was so great. I know. Yes. Tyler's having these little quip answers, quick-witted, you know, when he's talking with uh, George O. And she's like, I'm going to trust you, but if you betray my trust, I'm going to hunt you down. Literary Treks. And we have the USS Titan, and they're they're going so far as to make modifications to people's quarters and the different living arrangements to account for various alien physiologies and all that sort of thing. Because not only do we have just a diversity of alien species, we have a diversity of people who aren't even humanoid, which I think is a really cool thing and something... You know, you can do that in a book at the time more easily than you could on television, for sure. So I think they make really good use of the medium to present us a, with a crew like this. Warp 5. Because he had a near-death experience, he's now all of a sudden upset that T'Pol won't admit her feelings for him. Right. Right. And now, look, I can understand how the near-death experience triggers that, but this the payoff of him asking to leave should have happened... Three episodes from now. Yes, he should be grown up enough. Earl Grey. I mean, of course, the difference with Geordi and Data is that they're regular characters and they're in almost every episode. <laughs> so there's more of that potential for interaction and Guinan isn't in it as many. And I know it wouldn't have been as possible at the time, but I can dream about the next generation starting with Guinan being like a regular there every week. I mean, hey, you know, Quark's a bartender and he's a regular on DS9. Why not Guinan? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Let's go back in time and change that. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.
If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter and online hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right.